0: Well, it's good to be with you this morning as we open up God's Word together from the Gospel of Matthew. If we haven't yet met yet, my name is Dirk Jaspers. I serve as a pastoral resident here at First Free. And this morning we come to two stories that are some of the most famous and yet most tragic in all of Matthew's Gospel. The story of Jesus' rejection by his own hometown of Nazareth, and the story of John the Baptist's rejection and beheading by Herod. Though each of these stories deals with different events, and one deals with the rejection of Jesus and the other the rejection of John, together they are meant to tell one larger story, a story we need to hear today. So would you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, verse 53, and stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading through Matthew 14, verse 13. Matthew 13, verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people. "'because they held him to be a prophet. "'But when Herod's birthday came, "'the daughter of Herodias danced before the company "'and pleased Herod, "'so that he promised with an oath "'to give her whatever she might ask. "'Prompted by her mother, she said, "'Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter.' "'And the king was sorry, "'but because of his oaths and his guests, "'he commanded it to be given. "'He sent and had John beheaded in the prison,' And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But When the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from their towns. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As I said before the scripture reading, this morning we come to two stories of prophets rejected. Jesus rejected by his own hometown, John rejected and executed by Herod. Together they tell a shared story that fits with a broader story throughout the Bible, a story of sinful rebellion against God, expressed through rejection of his prophets and their calls to repent. Together these stories fit a pattern and together they point towards the ultimate act of rejection and rebellion, Christ's crucifixion by many in Israel. My hope as we walk through these two stories together is that they will serve as an object lesson. It will cause us to look at our own responses to Jesus and ask, am I responding to Jesus rightly? Am I embracing him through faith and repentance? Or am I rejecting him through hard-hearted sin. So during our time together, we're just going to walk through each story in turn see, and then see how they point to Christ's crucifixion before concluding with some implications for our lives today. Our first story of rejection takes place in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. We read verse 53 that when Jesus had finished these parables, referring to his parables in Matthew 13, he went away from there, And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished. We can picture the scene, right? Jesus, the hometown boy, has come back. He walks into the synagogue where he would have grown up, would have gone to Sabbath school, would have learned his Torah. He gets up to speak before the congregation, and as he looks out, he would have seen many familiar faces. Imagine he probably saw the elders of the synagogue who had taught him, perhaps older women who had helped his mother Mary raise him, had held him as a baby or bandaged up his scraped knee. He likely saw merchants who had done business with his father Joseph as Jesus was learning the trade, perhaps others he had grown up with, and certainly members of his own family, his brothers and sisters. We might expect a crowd like this to be friendly, right? Jesus is on his home turf, his home field advantage. Yet we read that the response is altogether different. Jesus is no favorite son in Nazareth. We read that as he taught them, they were astonished, verse 54, and they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? They see in Jesus' teaching clear wisdom. Clear authority. Throughout Matthew's Gospel, we've seen that Jesus' teaching causes people to sit up and ask, Who is this? How does he speak like this? Where does he get this teaching? And likewise, they apparently saw with their own eyes some of Jesus' mighty works. Again, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, who is the promised Messiah come to save God's people from their sins, has been doing miraculous deeds healing the blind and the lame, casting out demons, healing the sick, the very things that the prophets in the Old Testament had said the Messiah would do. And again and again, like with his teaching, we've seen that people, when they come into contact with Jesus and see his miraculous deeds, are forced to ask, who is this? How is he able to do these things? The People of Nazareth are no different. They hear with their ears Jesus' wisdom. They see with their eyes His mighty works. And yet rather than acknowledge Him as Messiah, they instead reject Him. They take offense. They stumble over the stumbling stone. They ask, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas... And are not all his sisters with us? You can hear the skepticism in their voice, right? Where'd Jesus get all these things? We know his dad, Joseph. He doesn't teach like this. We know his mother, Mary, and his brothers and his sisters. They don't do these sorts of miraculous deeds. He certainly didn't learn these things here in our town, in our synagogue. Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. In a tragic irony, Jesus finds the hardest soil, the hardest hearts, not in those who are Gentiles, not in those who we might expect would reject the Messiah promised to Israel. Instead, he finds the hardest soil, the hardest hearts in his own hometown. Jesus does not seem surprised by this. He said to them, verse 57, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus says that his treatment, his rejection, by the people he grew up with, by members of his own family, fits a pattern. It fits the response God's prophets have always received from God's people. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people, those who had been given God's law, those who had been redeemed by him in the Exodus, those who had seen his love again and again, consistently turned away and turned to sin. And God in his love had sent prophet after prophet after prophet. Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, the list goes on and on. And these prophets had come to God's people and said, turn from your sin, repent, turn back to God. And yet again and again and again, God's people had ignored them, had rejected them. Those who had been given every advantage by God still in their hard hearts turned their back on God's prophets. Jesus says that in his treatment by his own hometown, he is receiving the same response as those prophets. Earlier in Matthew 13, two weeks ago, Pastor Josh taught on the parable of the sower. There, Jesus had said to his disciples that the way he was treated would be the same as the way the prophet Isaiah had been treated. He quoted from Isaiah, where God had told Isaiah that many would hear but never understand, that people would see but never perceive. For the people's hearts had grown dull, and with their ears they could barely hear, and their eyes they had closed. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and God would heal them. Jesus said, as it was in Isaiah's day, as Isaiah went to his people, and yet received rejection after rejection, so it will be with me from many in Israel." And here in his response from Nazareth, we see that same pattern playing out. Indeed, the people of Jesus' hometown heard Jesus' wisdom. They don't deny that he is wisdom, yet they don't understand that that wisdom points to Jesus' true identity as the Messiah of God. They see the mighty works that Jesus does, but they never perceive that they point to Jesus as the promised Messiah. Why is this? Well, as in Isaiah's day, God's people, many in Israel, including the people of Nazareth, had loved their sin, and they'd turned away from God, and they'd closed their eyes. Their hearts had grown dull, and so with their ears they could barely hear the truths to which Jesus' teaching pointed. With their eyes they had closed, and so they could not see the reality to which his miracles pointed. Otherwise they would have seen with their eyes and heard with their ears and understood with their hearts and they would have turned in repentance and Christ would have healed them. Thus we read at the end of verse 58 the tragic truth that he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Each person, everyone who has ever lived, must come to a decision about who Jesus is. And whether we are going to follow him or not. We should respond to Jesus with embrace, and we should heed his call to repent and turn from sin and to follow him. Yet many, many in Jesus' day, many in Jesus' hometown, many in Jesus' own family, instead rejected him, refused to repent, refused to embrace him as the Messiah. And so they cut themselves off from the blessings of living under his rule, from the life that he brought, from the blessings of obedience. This is a tragic picture of what can happen if we so love our sin that we reject Jesus. And it can be especially easy for us to fall into this trap when we think we know who Jesus is, when we're familiar with him, when we think we know all about him. Perhaps some of you have grown up in this church hearing about Jesus week after week after week and yet you have not turned to him. Perhaps some of us have gotten so accustomed to what Jesus calls us to that we are no longer sensitive when he calls us to turn from sin and to follow him. We've lost sight of the reality of who he is and who he calls us to be. Friends, let us not be like the people of Nazareth whose familiarity with Jesus bred contempt and led them to reject him. Instead, let us embrace him and follow him. It is in him that we find life. This pattern of Jesus being rejected by those who should have most known who he was is not a new theme in Matthew. We see it in the Pharisees, the religious experts who knew their Bibles backwards and forwards who knew the promises of the Messiah, and yet when they heard Jesus' teaching and saw his miracles, instead accused him of being possessed by Satan. We've seen it in the cities where Jesus did many of his public works, cities that he condemns and denounces in Matthew 11 because though they saw his signs, they refused to repent. This is a tragic picture, a tragic pattern that would continue and find its fullest flower in Jesus' crucifixion and his mocking at the cross. Yet Jesus endured this mocking, endured this rejection by his own people, by many of his own family members, for our sake, for our salvation, that we might be accepted into his family. This pattern of sinful rejection of God's prophets continues in our second story, the story of Herod's execution and rejection of, by king herod we read chapter 14 verse 1 that at that time herod the tetrarch heard about the fame of jesus and he said to his servants this is john the baptist he has been raised from the dead that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him now as we read this if we've been paying attention to matthew we might say hold up wait a minute what's going on here Last time we heard from John, he was still alive and kicking. Yet now Herod seems to think that John is dead and that Jesus is a resurrected John the Baptist. What's going on here? What's happened? The sad truth is that in between the events of Matthew 11 and where we are now in Matthew 14, Herod, the Tetrarch, the ruler of Galilee, where Jesus and John did much of their public ministry, had executed John the Baptist because John the Baptist, the quintessential Old Testament prophet, had called him to repent of his sin. John explains what had happened in the form of a flashback, verses 3 through 12. We read that Herod, this is the son of the Herod who attempted to kill Jesus, in the story of Christmas, Herod the Tetrarch had seized John and bound him, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Now, if you know anything about the Herods here in the scriptures, and also in historians like Josephus, you know that it reads like a bad daytime soap opera. There's a lot of intrigue, there's a lot of affairs, there's a lot of violence, and there's a lot of really fascinating plot twists. Now, we know from the Gospels and from the first century Jewish historian Josephus that there was a backstory here. So the synopsis of the previous episodes in the soap opera is this. Herod, who ruled a quarter of his father's former kingdom, had been married in a political marriage to the wife of a neighboring king. Yet over time, he had fallen in love with his own niece, who was also the sister of of, his, of one of his brothers, Herodias. He and Herodias decided to divorce their respective spouses and marry one another, which constituted a direct sin against God. It violated the book of Leviticus's prohibition on a man having relations with his brother's wife. Now when they did this, John the Baptist, the prophet who God had sent to prepare the way for the Messiah, the prophet who had called on all of God's people, no matter how powerful or prestigious, to repent and turn from sin and follow God. John the Baptist did not spare Herod. Instead, he confronted him repeatedly. The language in in verse 4 suggests this. He said repeatedly, it's wrong for you, Herod, to have your brother's wife. It is not lawful for you to have her. And so again and again and again, he confronted Herod. And he likely did so in public. Herod and Herodias were obviously not happy with this. Who was this prophet out in the desert to condemn their relationship, to condemn their marriage? And so Herod arrested John and bound him and threw him in prison. You see, John's criticism was not only a personal affront to Herod and Herodias, it also caused all kinds of political problems. Herod was sensitive to his reputation with his primarily Jewish population, and he knew that if John consistently and publicly criticized his relationship as violating the Mosaic law, it would drive down his public support. We also know that it caused international problems for Herod. At this point, there was a significant tension between him and his original father-in-law who ruled the neighboring kingdom. Tensions that eventually would lead to war between them. And so Herod arrested John to try to shut him up. And we read verse 5 that he wanted to put John to death. It's no surprise given the personal and political headaches John is causing him. Yet Herod, ever the savvy politician, knew that if he executed John, he would alienate his own population. We read verse 5 that he feared the people, because they held John to be a prophet. And so he left John to languish in prison rather than executing him. Yet his wife Herodias so hated John, so hated his condemnation of her relationship, that she looked for any opportunity she could take to execute him. And she found her opportunity on Herod's birthday. We read verse 6 that on Herod's birthday he threw a party, as was common for kings in his day, a party for many of his allies, his court. And at this party, the food would have been plentiful. They're feasting, the wine was flowing, and eventually they decided to have some evening's entertainment. We read verse 6 that the daughter of Herodias came and danced before the company and pleased Herod. And Herod was so pleased by her dancing that he promised her a blank check. He promised with an oath in front of all of his dinner guests that he would give her whatever she might ask. Herodias, her mother, realized that this was the opportunity she was looking for, and so she pounced. She told her daughter, go and ask for John's head on a platter. And that is exactly what the girl did. We see this in verse 8. Herod, we read, verse 9, was sorry. After all, he's in a tough spot. If he executes John, he risks alienating his own people. But if he doesn't give the girl what he's promised her, then he'll lose face in front of all his guests and all his political allies. And so Herod, his hand forced, gives the order, and John's head is served up to the girl on a platter, which she brings to her mother. Herod and Herodias did not have to treat John this way. We see in this story they're sinking deeper and deeper down into their sin. Yet if they had responded to John, if they had listened to his call to repent in the first place, they would not have executed God's prophet. Herod and Herodias so loved their sin that when confronted by John, when confronted by God's messenger with the call to repent, they rejected him and ultimately killed him. In this story we see the continuation of a pattern. This same pattern that we saw in Nazareth of God's prophets being rejected and ultimately killed. It's a pattern that is present in the Old Testament. It's a pattern that is present in John. It's a pattern that is present in Jesus' life. And it is especially in John's treatment that we see a foreshadowing of Jesus' treatment at the cross. You see, John was Jesus' forerunner the one who had been promised by the prophet Malachi, the one who would come, the second Elijah, who would prepare the way for the Messiah. John was Jesus' forerunner in message. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then Jesus came and he said the same thing, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. John was Jesus' forerunner in rejection. Though he called many people to repent, most ignored him. Just as when Jesus came and called people like his own hometown to repent, they too ignored him. And just as John was Jesus' forerunner in message and forerunner in reception, here he is Jesus' forerunner in martyrdom. Jesus makes this connection clear and explicit later later in Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew 16, Matthew 17, excuse me, Jesus' disciples asked him, verses 9 through 13, about the Elijah who was to come, about John. Jesus answered them this, verse 11 Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah, referring to John the Baptist, has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. He says, John came. He proclaimed his message, and yet most did not recognize him, and instead they persecuted him. And of course, we know he ultimately was killed for his prophetic message. Jesus says, They did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Jesus says, As it went with the prophets, as it went with John, so it will go with me. As John was rejected, persecuted, and executed, so I too will be rejected, persecuted, and executed. And of course, we know where that path led, led to the cross, where we later will read about the Pharisees and many of the people standing there mocking Jesus, condemning him, making fun of him as he suffers on the cross and dies for our sins. What are we to make of this? This tragic pattern of God's messengers being rejected and ultimately killed. What does this mean for us in our own day, thousands of years later? A few things I want us to see. First, if you're here this morning and you have not yet come to terms with Jesus, know that there are only two responses. You can embrace Jesus in faith and belief and repentance or you can reject him and harden your hearts like nazareth did it may not be as dramatic as executing john or crucifying jesus but it's still rejection and it still fits this pattern you don't have a there's no neutrality when it comes to jesus you can either embrace him or you can turn your back on him and for those of you who have grown up familiar with jesus The risks are even higher. It can be so easy to believe that you know all about him, that you've investigated that, and that you can write him off. But know that he is the Messiah. He is the one who was promised to save from sin, the one who is now exalted to the right hand of the Father, and one day he will return, and we will see him in his glory. Please do not harden your hearts. Do not reject Jesus. Turn. Embrace him in faith. And embrace him in repentance second if we're here today and we're part of god's family which i trust most if not many of us are we ought to respond to jesus with sensitive hearts god's people throughout the old testament repeatedly turned away from him and then when he sent messenger after messenger to call them to repentance they refused again and again and again let us not be like them. When God confronts us with the realities of sin, whether in our own individual lives or in our communal life as a church, let us be those who respond with sensitive hearts, who listen and turn from sin, rather than those who harden our hearts and close our eyes and plug our ears and behead his messengers. Let us be those who, when we hear God's correction, whether through his word Or through the example of Jesus, let us turn and turn quickly with soft hearts that love him and seek to serve him and embrace him. Let us not reject him like his hometown did, like his family did. Let us not reject him when he confronts us with our sin as Herod did with John. Instead, let us turn quickly and faithfully. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, I want us to see in Jesus's rejection, in John's rejection, a picture of God's love for us. Jesus suffered the rejection of men, the rejection of his hometown, the rejection of many in his own family for us. God could have left us in our sin, left us to die under the penalty that it brings, but instead... From the Father's love, the Son came. Jesus, who was worshipped by the angels in heaven, who was adored and embraced, chose to come to earth and walk the path of rejection. He who was beloved by all in heaven came to be rejected and scorned and crucified on a cross. He was rejected that we might be accepted into his family. He suffered scorn so that we might have life. In Jesus' rejection in his hometown, we see how far he would go to save us. And in his crucifixion, in the mocking that he suffered, in the path that he walked, we see the clearest picture of his love that we could ever see. We see his love magnified beyond anything we could ever conceive of on our own. And so as we look at Jesus... At his willingness to be rejected and scorned and to suffer for our sake, let us rejoice. Let us give thanks to God and glory to Jesus. Let us honor him who was dishonored in his hometown. Let us praise him and worship him because he loved us enough to suffer for our sake, because he loved us enough to be crucified, because he loved us enough to suffer and be rejected that we might live and be accepted. Please pray with me. Our Father, we confess that all too often we have turned our hearts away from you, that we have rejected you and your calls for us to turn to you in righteousness. We confess that all too often our hearts are like those of the people of Nazareth, like those of Herod, where we resist and we push back and we scorn your message to us. Yet we thank you that by your Spirit you have made it possible for us to respond to Jesus rightly. You have made it possible for us to turn to sin and embrace Jesus in faith. I ask that those who are here this morning who do not yet know you would open their ears and their eyes and would turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Bring them to yourself today. I ask that we here who belong to you would have soft hearts who long to follow you Who listen when you correct us, who do not respond with hard hearted rejection, but with soft hearted embrace, with hatred of sin and pursuit of righteousness, with love for Christ. And lastly, Father, we thank you that you loved us enough to send your Son, that he, the praise of all in heaven, came to save us, and that his story did not end with rejection, but that he is seated at your right hand that he will return in power and glory and on that day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord and on that day he will be honored. So would you work in our hearts, would you cause us to praise you and would we worship you and glorify you this morning both in our singing and in our lives. Be glorified in us this morning we pray. Amen.